Matthew, chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. He writes, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. If you would, please pray with me. Lord God, we give you thanks and praise for this day. We thank you, Lord, for calling us out of our beds and into worship with your bride here at Christ Community Church. Lord God, we pray, Father, as we continue to worship you this morning, Lord, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, we thank you for our worship in song and in the reading of your word and in confession of our sins. So, Lord, as we move forward now to hear your word taught and proclaimed, Lord, we pray, God, that you would open our minds and our hearts to hear and to believe and to understand. And we ask all of these things in the name of the risen Christ. Amen. Well, as I have, I'm sure many of you have probably had friends over the years leave the faith for one reason or another. Um, I have had both friends from high school, And I know this probably isn't that surprising, but even friends from college where I went to Union, which is a Christian university, I've also had friends from Union leave the faith for one reason or another over the years. And so obviously, you know, over the course of time, and some of those friends are actually a little bit of both. One was from high school and then went to college with me and he has since left the faith. Uh, But um, I've had conversations with some of these friends about why they've left the faith. And I have gotten, as I'm sure you have, responses all over the spectrum, each kind of probably more ludicrous than the next, right? Um, so I want to give you some examples because I think it's important. So, and it's important for how we're going to look at this text today. So one example that I have been given, and I'm sure we have all heard this, is that, well, Christianity and really all religions are just not logical, right? They're not scientific. They're not plausible. So I'm not going to waste my, my brain power thinking about it, right? Other ones that have been given, and this is more common, more, most likely, is, well, I have a problem with evil. So if God is good and holy and just and loving, then why does evil exist? Right? Now, for people that used to once claim faith in Christ, should at the very least have a basic definition of sin and understand why evil exists in the world. Right? Other ones, and they're absolutely right with this, is that, well, Christians are hypocrites and the church is full of hypocrites. Well, yeah, we're all a bunch of hypocrites because, again, sin. Right? This one... And I know I have heard this one probably more in the modern context. And it's, well, I think God is a God of love. And so he won't condemn me for who I love because love is love. Again, I think sin ought to come into play here. But this one is my most favorite. And I heard this from a friend whom I went to high school with who has since left the faith. And he said, I think it's all just a bunch of waste of time because I already know everything that's in the Bible. So I've heard it before. Why waste my time? 
So again, I heard that response a few years ago from a friend of mine who's, who's really, he's one of those guys that already knows everything. And if you don't agree with him, then obviously you're wrong and he's not, right? He's just, we, all know, we all know the type, right? But this week, as I was looking at this text, I was thinking about that old friend, and, and, and I'm going to put friend in bold air quotes here, uh, because we haven't, we haven't actually spoken since uh, before Sharon and I got married, so it's been a long time. But I was thinking about him this week because one thing he said when he did give me that excuse actually kind of comes into play here only because this is a very familiar text. We've heard this text before. Uh, we've heard a variation of this text before, whether it be here or in Mark or in Luke. And so it's hard when you come to a text like this to not kind of ask yourself the question, what are we to do with texts like these that are so familiar to us? We've heard them taught. We've heard them preached. We've heard them. We've read them multiple, multiple times. Year after year after year, we come to the baptism of the Lord and we celebrate it. And we read a text like this or in Mark or in Luke. And you kind of wonder as you're looking at it, is there anything left for us to glean from very familiar passages of Scripture especially about the life and ministry of Christ, which we devote half of our year, especially in the celebratory season, talking about. Now, knowing the ones in the room that I know, which is everybody, I know all of you here would say, absolutely, there's still things we can learn from texts like these, right? It's, it's obviously ignorant and silly to assume that God does not have something for us to learn from texts that are even very familiar to us just because they're familiar, right? We know that... God works through his word over the course of our entire lives, which is why we read scripture and we reread scripture and we reread scripture until we die. And you also know, though, that familiarity with God's word is actually built into the DNA of our covenant relationship with him. He tells the children of Israel in Deuteronomy 6, which is known as the Shema, he tells them this. He says, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart and you shall teach them diligently, meaning do it a lot. Teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In Psalm chapter 1, we read that the blessed man is the one who delights in the law of God, and on God's law, he meditates day and night. There's consistency. There's familiarity constantly. And so, as I was looking at this text, and I was considering the familiarity of this text, it hit me that one of the underlying purposes of the celebratory season is remembrance. Frankly, one of the many reasons, and there is a list, one of the many reasons in which we even gather for worship is for the purpose of remembrance. We hit on this idea last week in Isaiah 63 when we read in Isaiah 63 verse 7, Isaiah writes, I recount or I recall or I remember the steadfast, loyal covenant love of the Lord God. And when he was doing that, as we discussed last week, when we do that, what we are doing at the same time is inviting one another to constantly remember and recount God's steadfast, loyal love. And so part of the goal of a pastor or elder or shepherd is to pastor and elder and shepherd the flock of God under his charge by constantly and consistently leading them to healthy and fruitful pasture land for nourishment. And the healthiest plot of land to feed the flock of God is a steady diet of the scriptures. 
which is why we oftentimes come to constant familiar text because our diet remains the same, but we know that it is for our good. And so as we turn our attention to this text, here's, I want to set a goal for this morning. And really, it's kind of the goal for the whole celebratory season, but it really fits for this morning and definitely for Epiphany. And the goal is to do this, is to remind us not only what and why we are celebrating, so what we are celebrating and why we are celebrating, today being the baptism of the Lord, but also the goal is to see texts like this, ones that we've heard many times before, is to ask the question, what are we inviting one another to remember out of a text like this? What, and how does a text like this aid us in worshiping Christ? And then finally, how does a text like this nourish us as God's people? How does it nourish us as the flock of God at Christ Community Church? And there's a lot of ways that this text can. I mean, there's a lot packed into these few verses. But I only want to focus on one, and then we're going to come to the table and remember what Christ has done on our behalf. And it can be summed up in this. This is what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at the idea of identification, the theme of identification. And so this is a theme that I really think, I've looked at the lectionary for all of Epiphany, and this really runs through the entirety of our Epiphany readings. And so as we begin to look here, let's just take a moment real quick and consider this through that lenses, uh, the lens of God's loyal, covenant, steadfast love that we looked at over the course of Christmas. And so over the season of Christmas tide, so just two Sundays, Christmas morning and then last week on New Year's Day, we considered portions of Isaiah 62 and Isaiah 63, and we read of God's covenant with his people, but that also bleeds into his faithfulness to his covenant, which has been fulfilled ultimately and completed and ratified in the person of Christ Jesus by his incarnation and his death and his resurrection. And so building out of God's steadfast, loyal covenant love, building out of his hesed, we come to the season of epiphany. And we begin to see how God's steadfast love to his covenant and his covenant people leads not only to the sending of Christ in the incarnation, but by sending Christ, there is an identification with his covenant people as well as us being able to identify with him. And so before we unpack this theme, let's let Matthew in this text, especially verses 13 and 14, so really the first two sentences, let's let Matthew set the context for us. So in verses 13 and 14, We actually had Connor and Angelo actually help set the context during Advent when we read the text immediately preceding this in in Matthew chapter 3 of John the Baptist. So John, what we have in the context, John is baptizing in the Jordan. And then now in verse 13, that very first sentence there, we see that Jesus now comes to John to be baptized. He comes down from Galilee, which is in the north, to wherever John is on the Jordan River baptizing. And then we read this in verse 14, where, we, where he says, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? So I read this, and I'm, uh, you, you have to ask the question, why, why would John make a statement like this? So I want to I pretend for a minute. Let's, let's pretend for a moment that we're completely blind on any knowledge of the Gospels. All right? let's, let's pretend that all we know of the life of Jesus and John the Baptist comes from the Gospel of Matthew up until this point. So chapters 1, 2, and now halfway through chapter 3. So chronologically, at least for Matthew's Gospel, John the Baptist and Jesus have never interacted, according to Matthew's Gospel. 
All we have had in Matthew's gospel in chapter 1, 2, and now 3 is Jesus' birth being proclaimed by an angel after the, um, the lineage that Matthew gives. Jesus' birth has been proclaimed by an angel to Joseph. The Magi have visited. Jesus has been born. And then Joseph, Mary, and Jesus flee to Egypt. And then they return. And then now, apparently, we have now fast-forwarded a few decades. And we get to chapter 3. And we meet this guy named John the Baptist who was baptizing in the Jordan River. The only other context we have about John the Baptist comes from Isaiah that we read in verse 3, that he is the voice of one crying in the wilderness. So that's all we know, right? That's, that's it. That's our context as we come to the baptism of the Lord in Matthew 3. And so with that context, though, note how very interesting it is what comes right before this text. John had just objected to baptizing the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He had just objected to the religious leaders and the scholars of his culture. He is giving them a baptism of repentance, and they come, and he calls them a brood of vipers, which is a pretty big insult. And he does so because, as you continue to read in that little passage there, he feels that they are completely unworthy of the baptism that he offered. They are unworthy to come for a baptism of repentance. And so now in verse 14, though, we see he's objecting again. But he objects for a different reason because now you can understand that he is objecting because he feels that he is unworthy to baptize this guy named Jesus. And so again, coming at this without any knowledge that John and Jesus are cousins, right? What little we know from Matthew, what makes John, what, the question is, is what makes John assume this about himself and about Jesus? Because for all we know at this moment in Matthew's gospel, John and Jesus not only have never interacted, but... John couldn't pick Jesus out of a lineup if you paid him, right? I mean, this is all we know from Matthew's gospel. So what makes him assume that, G- that John needs to be baptized by Jesus instead of the other way around? So there's two ways of understanding this response that I think help us with this theme of identification. The first way of understanding John's response in verse 14 is that somehow, and this somehow we would obviously attribute to the work of the Holy Spirit, John has the exact same background that we have of Matthew 1 and 2 and everything else we know about their relationship. So as Jesus comes to John on the Jordan, we can understand that John immediately recognizes Jesus as the Christ. And because he recognizes Jesus as the Christ, he understands that the baptism Jesus will offer, which he has just said in verses 11 and 12, a baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire is a more significant baptism and a more salvific baptism and a more eternal baptism than what John could ever hope to provide. So simply put, John understands his role in salvation history, and he understands Jesus' baptism is superior than his own, and he rightly desires to be baptized in the baptism of Christ. So that's one way of seeing this. The second way is not only does John recognize Jesus as the Christ, but because he recognizes Jesus as the Christ... John immediately thinks of the context of his own baptism, which is a baptism of repentance. And he knows Jesus is the Christ, meaning he has no need to repent because he has not sinned, because he is the Christ. So John understands that Jesus offers forgiveness for sins. He doesn't need it. And aware of his own sinful condition, John understands that Jesus is greater and should be the one to baptize him. I think both of these are obviously right, and they're going to come into play even more next week when we look at the Gospel of John chapter 1. 
But with that context in mind, move down to verse 15 and look at Jesus' response. And here's where we're going to hang out for just a couple of minutes, and then we're going to come to the table. Jesus responds to John's objection, and he says, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. So, how does this bridge our consideration of God's steadfast, loyal covenant love that we looked at over Christmas with the theme of identification? There was a pastor of the 20th century. He just died in 2000. His name was James Montgomery Boyce. Some of you may know his name. Some of you may not. He was a Presbyterian minister, but he wrote this. He said, the best way to understand Jesus' response to John here is by understanding the primary significance for baptism. And then he goes on and he says this. The primary significance for baptism is not mode. It's identification. And just like when Alderaan is destroyed in Star Wars A New Hope, the fact that I mentioned that mode could be up for debate, every Southern Baptist listening to this is having a conniption, right? <laughs> because, because I'm suggesting here, and what, what, what Boyce is suggesting here, is that mode is not the primary significance of baptism. It's identification. I think Southern Seminary is calling me and asking for my degree back, right? But, but let's consider what Boyce is saying based upon... Scripture, especially as we look at this theme of identification. Because Scripture tells us that when we are baptized, we are identified with Christ and we are identified with the covenant that he has instituted. As Paul tells us in Romans 6, in Christian baptism, we are identified with Christ in his death and in his resurrection so that his death becomes our death and his resurrection becomes our resurrection. In Jesus' baptism by John, what Jesus is doing is he is identifying himself with us in our humanity by taking upon himself the commission from God to fulfill all righteousness. And in doing so, Jesus becomes our perfect Savior and the one in whom we can identify with. As we read last week in Isaiah 63, 8, God proclaims, Surely they are my children. And then he became their savior. And so Christ, what he does is he identifies with us in his baptism so that by grace through faith in our own baptisms, we are identified with him. As we read in John 1 just a moment ago when we, before we confessed our sins, to all who did receive him who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. But in order to understand this theme of further, let's, just, let's break down this verse and see how Jesus responds to John's objection. So first, in verse 14, again, we see that John, he objects, and Jesus then immediately responds here. He says, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting. So another way of translating this could be, let it be done this way for the present. Or, excuse me, let it be done this way for the present, meaning... That this, the baptism of the Lord, is God's will, and it must be done, and it must be done now, or righteousness will not be fulfilled. In the Greek, this word that's used here in our, in our ESV for the word fitting also signifies something that is proper or is morally right. Another way that this could be seen, it really actually fits well with our epiphany theme of the manifestation of Christ, which is what's happening in his baptism. 
But another way to understand this word could be to be clearly seen. So what Jesus, what he's saying here when he responds to John, he responds that he must be baptized so that he can be manifested or so that he could be clearly seen to be the Christ that has come, to be the lamb that has come to take away the sins of the world. Jesus must begin his messianic work with baptism. And then the Lord tells John why his baptism must happen now. He says it's not only to manifest him as the Christ, but also to fulfill all righteousness. I'm going to butcher this name, but there was a, there was a bishop of the late 300s whose name is Chromatius, I believe is how you say it. But he writes this regarding Jesus' response to John. He says, Jesus tells John this to show himself to be true righteousness, that he, the Lord and Master, should fulfill in himself every sacrament of our salvation. Therefore, the Lord did not need to be baptized for his own sake, but for ours in order to fulfill all righteousness. And then as we see here at the end of the verse, John consents because he understands that for the present moment, it is still his hour. His ministry is almost over, but not yet. And by receiving John's baptism, Jesus identifies himself with his people rather than distancing himself from them. And so the nation itself needs to repent of its sins, and Jesus is part of that nation. And so Jesus stands along with the prophets of old, like Daniel and Nehemiah and even Job, and he leads the way by his example of receiving John's baptism. And by seeking John's baptism, Jesus so intensely identifies himself with his chosen covenant people that he binds himself to the destiny of his covenant people. He binds himself to you and me. He binds himself to the church. He even prays as much in his high priestly prayer in John 17. He says, I do not ask for these only, meaning my disciples, but also for all who would believe in me through their word, meaning you and me in 2023. That by that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I am in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me, love them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me before, because you loved me before the foundations of the world. Jesus is praying that the Father would remind us and identify us with himself. And so by his baptism, Jesus affirms his determination to do the work that he came to accomplish. He says again, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus must now, at this point in salvation history, be baptized. Because by doing so, he is fulfilling all righteousness. By adhering to the will of the Father and by identifying with his covenant people. And then John consented. And then the Spirit empowered him for ministry. And the Father was pleased. And so as we close and as we prepare to Eucharist together, let me double back just real quickly to that goal that I set, which is what are we being called to remember? How is this aiding us in worship and how are we nourished? So why, why is it important to be reminded 
of texts like this on a regular basis. I'm going to insult you all for a moment, and I'm going to do it in love because I'm insulting myself. The reason that it is good for us to be reminded on a regular basis is because, frankly, we are all prone to forget. And even if the text is a very familiar one, we are prone to forget that the Lord was baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness, not only to begin his ministry, but to also identify with us as his covenant people. So that by our baptisms, we can identify with him in his death and in his resurrection. And this aids us in worship because Christ identified with us so that we might identify with him. That's the key phrase for the day. As the author of Hebrews even writes, he says, Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. And then finally, this familiar text nourishes us as the flock of God because we are reminded that Christ, in identifying with us as his covenant people, took on our weaknesses and our tribulations for the purpose of redeeming us from them. Again, the author of Hebrews continues, he says, He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. As Thomas Merton once wrote, he said, My identity is hidden in the love and mercy of God through Christ Jesus. So as we come to the table, let us remember and make great thanks for the work that Christ has done, which began by his identifying with us in our weaknesses, by humbling himself to take on flesh, to accept baptism, and to the point of death on a cross. Thanks be to God. Amen.